There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. LMFM Podcasts, brought to you with Cartmacross Cross Credit Union, where a student loan can help you finance your further education. Call to Cartmacross Cross Credit Union, O'Neill Street, or CartmacrossCU.ie. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 18th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The long weekend starts this evening for many of us and roads will be busy as thousands take advantage of the good weather and the time off work. Motorists will make their way to every corner of the country from early afternoon today through tomorrow. The Garda Easter road safety message is appealing to drivers to stay off phones and concentrate on the road. If you need to make or take a call, Gardaí are asking you to pull over and park up in order to use your phone. Tony Toner is a training director with the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland and joins us now. Good morning to you, Tony, and thanks for joining us. I suppose there's many safety reasons for not driving on your phone, but there's also the penalty. 60 euro fine, three penalty points, and this is uh, something that's near Nearly 5,000 drivers have incurred in the first two months of this year alone. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Um, yeah, listen, the, the phone is part of our lives. It's, it, it's not going away. Uh, it's something we have to manage. Uh, we can manage it in a public place. Uh, you, you know, you don't want it going off in the cinema if you're in there this weekend. It's very annoying. You don't want it going off in church. You don't want it going, certainly you don't want it going off in court. Uh, and most certainly... Uh, you don't want it in your hand when you're driving your car because uh, it's having it in your hand. Whether you're, you, you are looking for a, a phone number, whether you're using the music facility on it or any other facility that these mobile computers have, um, we have to manage how we use it, Michael. And it is targeted by the RSA, as you said. It's an offence with three hefty penalty points uh, you know what I mean? And uh, if you go to court, there is zero sympathy. Are you surprised at uh, the amount of uh, people uh, who have been detected? Uh, it is up 24% uh, on uh, the first two months of last year. I am, Michael, because it's unnecessary, number one. Uh, most cars today, every car today, has a Bluetooth facility. And, you know, should you have a car that you don't know how to match 
your car, you know, to or your phone to your car and vice versa. Um, all it takes is, is a, you know, a quick call into your dealership and they will do it for you with a heart and a half. Um, the, um, the other thing is if your car doesn't have it, a small device that you put in your ear, which is 20, 25 euro, will save you a world of aggravation and a world of hurt. Uh, on top of that, the, the modern car, any car within the last three to five years, has very probably got um, voice activation technology on board. Um, certainly any new car has it. Uh, it also has Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. In other words, all you do is literally, with the, with the lead that you charge your phone with, when you get into the car, you um, just uh, hook your phone up to the lead and everything on your phone comes up on the screen in the center console. Mm-hmm. And you can activate anything from that, including text messages from the voice activation on, your, on, on the steering wheel. You hit the little insignia of the person's head and it'll ask you what you want to do. It can say, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you can say, telephone, ring Michael at LMFM. And if, if it's in your um, storage of names and addresses, boom, it'll ring it direct without you having to take your hands off the steering wheel. Okay, now I suppose uh, the same is uh, true for a lot of older cars uh, that they can connect uh, through an auxiliary lead uh, and uh, Absolutely, yeah. thing. But uh, what, what, what's the point? Uh, what difference does it make if you're talking hands-free or if you're holding the phone? Well, you know, on, on, on the pure driving end of it, Michael, there is... Um, there's not a whole lot of difference other than the fact you have one hand off the wheel. Uh, but the, the mental connection to the phone call whilst on the phone is an issue. There is no question it is an issue because it takes a huge amount of um, your brain power to actually drive. You're making a massive amount of decisions and the more experienced you are, you're, you're probably um, casual enough about um, what it takes to actually drive your car, mm. decide where to position it, you know, activation of uh, all the controls, particularly how much throttle to give it, how much brakes to give it, all these things. Um, it, it's only when, dare I say, you, you, you sit with somebody who analyzes your mm. driving that you find out, wow, there's more to this driving than I gave myself, uh, dare I say, credit for. And then you add the dimension of uh, keeping your concentration on every nuance of the phone call that's coming in. You don't miss anything. Mm. It's vastly different than having somebody in the car. Uh, and this is well proven. Uh, uh, and particularly so, if the reception is poor, you're really trying to concentrate on what somebody is saying or trying to hear what they're saying, and you're not concentrating on the job in hand, which is driving safely. There's more of an emotional connect, there's no question, that we, we are, we are, you're listening. And it's, it's called... It, it, it's uh, cognitive. Mm. It, it's a huge amount of brain processing required. And does that do. differ, though, if you're hands-free? There's not a whole lot of difference between yeah. hands-free mm-hmm. and one hand on a phone to your ear. Mm. The only difference is you have one less hand controlling. Well, I, I, I think the guards give a, a fair amount of weight to that as well because uh, you may be uh, using uh, the steering wheel with one hand and changing gear with uh, the other and... Uh, trying to uh, juggle a mobile phone somewhere in between uh, makes it uh, difficult to do all three. 
well, there's, there's all of that going on. And, um, you know, again, and you have this mental connect to the phone, mm. which is very, very strong. Um, people don't even realize it. It's not a mechanical connect. It is a, it, it's your brain connecting with it. But your brain power is required to process what's in front of you in relation to the road, the weather and the traffic. Yeah. And particularly this weekend where people mm. are going to, since Christmas, it, it could be their first, dare I say, connect with family across country. Uh, the first time with all the family in the car heading down and they're, they have the distraction of people in the car. If they're going to try and uh, have a phone to the rear at the same time, well, you know, they're, they're just going to overload uh, and it, it's going to be a... The, the risk of compromise is massive. And like that cognitive uh, effect uh, that uh, people may experience uh, and the distraction because their mind is on something else, whether they're hands-free or not, Gardy are suggesting that there is a problem visually, whether you're driving legally hands-free or illegally holding the phone because you move your eyes from the road to focus on the phone. That might be looking to see what number you're going to ring or whatever it is you're doing on the phone. And the other thing they say is that you might be looking at the road, but you're not seeing what's on the road because your mind is distracted. Absolutely. You know, as I said to you, your, your, your brain is, is listening for every nuance of the phone call. Um, you don't want to miss anything, any inference that's there. And, you know, if it, mm. dare to say it, if you're this weekend in particular, is, 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 as I said, it's um, the first weekend that you've, you've maybe done a large uh, amount of driving across country with all the family in the car, all of that stuff. Um, you, you have that end of it. If you're, you know, somebody in business, um, there's very few businesses today that if you get into the car, if you're turned off your phone and you could not be contacted, that the business owner would be happy. So, the, the, you know, the phone mm. uh, turns the car into a mobile office. But the management of those calls is a serious issue. And, you know, a lot of employers employers have uh, very, very, um, you know, strict, uh, uh, how would you call it, protocols for the use of the phone that uh, they, they don't want a situation where if you're going to call, we're going to call, that you're on the phone for three quarters of the journey. Mm. Uh, some people would see it as a uh, sensible use of time, uh, but there are the dangers uh, that are uh, attached and how we use all of our senses doing uh, a lot of this stuff, whether we realise it or not. We've talked about uh, the physical senses, uh, cognitive senses, visual senses. There's also the auditory senses uh, and that uh, we know it may not be hearing the sounds of the road, our general environment, because we're listening to the phone. Again, Michael, you're absolutely right. There is, uh, it, it just takes away from it. And the mechanical nature of what we drive, the repetitive stuff uh, that we've built up as drivers, uh, from the gear changing to uh, the steering and all that stuff, it's, is, they're mechanical. Mm. Uh, akin to tying your shoelace. You could put your foot up there on, 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 on a stool and tie your shoelace, which is a very, very intricate physical thing to do hmm. and we, me, you and I could have a conversation on, on, on what we're doing now and it wouldn't interfere with your ability to mechanically tie the shoelace hmm. securely but when it comes to you driving and being on the phone that splits up your brain power hmm. into two very very demanding 
roads. Okay, well, what what what, what have I told what, what have I told you? It was dangerous to tie your shoelace when you're on the phone. Would you ever stop it? You'd probably laugh at me and say, "Would you ever cop yourself on?" And undoubtedly, there's people listening to you this morning, toning, saying, uh, "Oh, whatever, sure, I, I'm on the phone all the time. There's no risk, no danger. I'm well capable of doing it." Yeah, you listen. Um, as I said, the phone is an integral part of our lives. And most certainly, and you know, I would advise anybody if they're going down the country this weekend and they're alone, um, make sure your phone is charged, make sure you have a charger on the phone and you have it with you as a, as a, because it's a huge safety device. It geolocates you, um, it gives you a huge, particularly any of the smartphones today, it puts up Google Maps straight away on the mm. center screen. It gives you all of these things that you can program and enhance your safety. It is a it is a huge um, advantage, but we must manage that advantage because the distraction is causing collisions and causing injury, and in some cases where they, it's unexplained. Um, you know what I mean? It could be the result, you know, yeah, well, the cause I, of the fatality. I suppose the reason for the message uh, from the Gardaí is so that everybody is safe and arrives at their des- destination safely. Uh, and they also say uh, that if you're holding your phone and driving, uh, you're four times more likely to have a crash than otherwise would be the case. Uh, so perhaps that in itself uh, is the message to heed. But if you do have a crash, obviously you'll hope that you are insured and that the insurance will cover you. Uh, interesting story from uh, the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors who are holding their annual delegate conference in Cavan this year, Tony, and uh, they're saying that fewer than 10% of motorists who don't have insurance are caught by Garda uh, every year. Uh, and that's out of a an estimated 150,000 150, uninsured drivers on the roads in this country. It really is an incredible statistic, isn't it? It's amazing to, to hear such um, an amount of people that we're sharing the road with that are effectively uninsured. And, you know, the, the big risk with that, Michael, is that anything you're involved in, um, there is a definite risk that they will um, flee the scene. Um, and should they stay, you're left with um, serious um, uh, burden of uh, financing to repair your car or, uh, you know what I mean, and, and possible personal injury and time out of work that you will not get compensation for. You know, and you have to go through the motor insurers, bureau, etc. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, yeah, it is shocking. It is shocking. And we all pay for it. I mean, there's no such thing as uh, insurance not being paid. There's 150,000 people uh, who don't pay it, but the rest of us pay it for them. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, um, you know, that disc on the front of the car is, is, is very important. And, like, should you be involved in a bump? Um, like, that disc is um, it's a legal requirement Um Proof of insurance is the actual certificate. You should always remember that. Um, you know, what I'd say to people is certainly don't have that insurance certificate in the car with you because it is, it is, um, it's an item that you're given 10 days to produce at a guard station of your choice. Um, you know, I, I see this quite regular, uh, Michael, where people will leave their driving license in the car, mm. they'll leave their insurance, and sometimes the registration documents. They'll have everything belong to the car in the car. Okay. If the car was broken into, you know, all of that stuff, that is serious collateral. Uh, effectively, you're handing over your own identity 
NFD registration documents are there. You're handing over complete control of the car to somebody. Okay, Tony. Well, I hope you have a, a safe weekend, uh, whether you're driving or otherwise, and a happy Easter. And thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Many thanks, Michael. Tony Enjoy Toner, Training Director with the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish Independent is uh, reporting uh, today that the FAI is refusing to comment on whether it has confidence in John Delaney's position as a member of the UEFA executive and also if John Delaney will carry out any FAI duties around the forthcoming European Under-17 Championship. This at a time when the Office of uh, the Director of Corporate Enforcement, the ODCE, has already arrived at Abbottstown as it begins its investigations into finances of the organisation. Let's talk uh, to Imelda Munster, who is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on sport and a TD for Louth. Good morning to you once again, uh, and thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Imelda. It's been another dramatic week, really, hasn't it? It has. um, It kicked off again last Wednesday um, with the the minister had produced a letter from the FAI, you know, and um, there were more questions asked again and even more concerns raised in relation to... um, I would have felt that the board should step aside while the reviews are happening, you know, and not after them was one of the issues. But also, um, we have to look at where we're going from here. I mean, firstly, the FAI board must be accountable, you know, and all boards, in fact, not just the FAI, but all organisations have to be accountable once they're um, in receipt of public funds. You know. are, are they going to step down? They uh, appear to be uh, in July. Uh, the minister said he'd like it to happen before that. Uh, but what they actually said was that they would come forward with a, a restructuring proposal in July. Well, they, you see, that's that's the fear there. I mean, they're actually, and I had said this at the meeting, they're actually overseeing their investigation themselves, you know, and they're going to bring forward the restructuring plan by the the existing board themselves, you know, when an interim board should be appointed. Because let's be honest, at this stage with the evasiveness, you know, they're refusing to answer questions and hiding behind the the Grant Thornton and the Mazars uh, reviews, it's very, very difficult to have any confidence in them whatsoever. But it seems to me... um, and I'd said this the other day that Sport Ireland and the minister were played, you know, on this, that they actually, um, the fact that they're remaining to oversee all the investigation, you know, the investigation, mm. the internal investigation, all that doesn't lend any confidence whatsoever. Well, oversee the instigation of mm. these investigations, because these investigations could take some time, could take years, in fact, to complete. Well, that, that's that's the other thing, too. I mean, the, the, the whole question for me was, and I had asked Sport Ireland, because up until then, the only investigations that were being carried out were by the FAI. You know, they were mm. initiated by the FAI um, themselves. Sport Ireland didn't actually um, insist on carrying out an investigation. They didn't insist on having a forensic audit. And that's that's what actually needs to happen, you know, like, where was the investigation from Sport Ireland all along? Where was the, the forensic audit? Because, you know, I had said at the committee meeting the other day that, you know, in relation to the committee going forward, mm. that if you look at it, right, it were it not for the whistleblower, 
that that contacted Mark Tighe, who initially broke this story. In the um, Times, we yeah. wouldn't have we wouldn't mm. have have known anything mm. about it, and we can't have whistleblowers as our oversight system. It's that's just not acceptable. Mm. And we need you know Sport Ireland were saying some of the responses that they didn't have the power. So that's our job now as a committee to make sure. But do you think that Sport Ireland should have instigated an investigation before uh, the €100,000 bridging loan story appeared in the Sunday Times? Well, you see, all along, Sport Ireland do an audit every three years, right? Um, The last one they did of the FAI was in 2016, and the next one is due this year. But all of those, you know, as I said, those audits, you Mm. know, it's, it's, you know... Every other year you have some accountant rubber stamp in the books and that's that's what's been happening and nothing had popped up in in the um, rubber, rubber stamping rubber stamping the books uh, would mean that they didn't give any attention to the contents perhaps they did and all looked to be in order uh, because uh, this is uh, how this ODCA investigation has resulted because Deloitte has now reported that there's a problem with accounting in the FAI well, that yeah, that, and that's a good thing, and it's now um, the ODCE. But um, Deloitte had been signing off on the accounts, and okay, you could say, well, all of a sudden, when it's in the spotlight, they detected inaccuracies. But for years, okay, but maybe that's a question for have, Deloitte rather than Sport Ireland. I suppose that's the question I'm putting yes, to you. But, no, but I'm saying Sport Ireland. You know, there was nothing to stop a forensic audit because I asked that question. And the minister said that he would fully agree with a forensic audit. So why why had Sport Ireland not initiated that? They had said initially they don't have the powers. The minister then said he'd have no problem with it. Then it went back to Sport Ireland. They just didn't do it. Right. They just so, didn't do it. So you're calling into question it. Sport Ireland's role or well, I'm saying that they have negligence been, in overseeing. No, the I'm effort. saying they've been lackadaisy in their yeah. approach. That's negligent, isn't it? Well, I'm saying lackadaisy insofar as, you know, even as this story broke, you'd imagine initially... Well, would have what, what does lackadaisy mean? Lazy? Well, it means, well, lazy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so that's negligent. I mean, it's all, well, it's all happened under their watch, you know. And if the minister had said that he, he would agree with a forensic audit, you know, then clearly either Sports Ireland didn't approach the minister about it or uh, the minister didn't instruct them to carry it out. But either way, it wasn't done. So, what? I mean, if that's what you honestly believe, what should be the consequence of that? If they've been negligent in their well, duty of overseeing the, 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 the spending of state money? They were saying they were... They were. They didn't have the powers, and I had said, "Well, you're toothless. You know, you've been mm, played." Yeah. But what I had said was, the, "the the committee should take control now because that's our job." Um. You know, I had suggested that we we have hearings mm. and do a report with an eye to legislation to give Sport Ireland and the minister more powers in terms of corporate accountability when it comes to public funds. Because if that's what they're saying is lacking, then that's what we have to do. And in doing that, you know, we. We bring in we 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 have here. But you're saying they could have. But you're saying Sport Ireland could clubs. Mm-hmm. Sorry, so, sorry. J- j- just correct me if I'm wrong. You're saying that Sport Ireland could have and should have instigated a forensic investigation into accounting practices in the FAI. Is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, and I have that, said before and, that and, their audit and, had showed mm-hmm. 
had never shown anything up. And okay. the fact that it was th- every three years, they should have been doing an audit every year. Uh, and since this came to light, uh, they, they, haven't. they haven't done it. And that has been lackadaisy or lazy or negligent on their part. I would say it was lackadaisy in relation to their oversight. Well, it's hard because, to well, it's, I mean, it's hard to, to think that lackadaisy means anything other than well, negligent in the, in the context you know, that you're saying it. Well, you have Sport Ireland there, right, that are tasked with governance and oversight. And yet we Okay, but if you're lackadaisy with three million euros, surely that's lazy. Well, lackadaisy, lazy, yeah, yeah. Right, but so, so what I'm saying that, is, that's negligent. Yeah, but what I'm saying is we can't have whistleblowers as our oversight system. Mm. And if it's a thing that Sport Ireland, as they say, don't have the powers, sufficient powers, then we as a committee need to do our job to identify the gaps, to fill in those gaps from a legislative point of view. That's what we need to do. And in order to... to keep it in the public domain so mm. that my worry is because at the minute but and you, I said this the yeah. other day we've all witnessed the brass necks of the FAI board we've all witnessed that but there's no law against it it's not illegal mm. for them to put them some members of the board to put themselves forward at the next year AGM of for course, the election yeah. so there's nothing stopping that so we have to kind of look at a mechanism and even if it's under company law mm. where shareholders can be can remove directors, you know, and maybe we we have to look at Sport Ireland becoming but shareholders. That's only a mechanism. They fund. That's only a mechanism for the committee to do what you believe Sport Ireland can do and should be doing and should have done already. Is that right? Well, it, on, when I had asked about, I had asked for the 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 board that Sport Ireland should call for the the entire board to step aside to resign and link that with a condition of the reinstatement of funding. And what they said was that they couldn't do that. And, and I had said, well, the same thing happened with the Olympic Council of Ireland, that funding wasn't restored until such time as the board were gone. And they said that was done under company law. But for some reason, they were saying that they hadn't the power. So that's the job of the committee to look at, to see if maybe we need to look at Sport Ireland becoming shareholders, for not just for the FA, but for all the organisations they fund. And, um, you know, and that way it's linking the funding to the board via the shares. Mm. So they can have a say in the running of the company and they can have a say in, in the election of the board. So that's because giving them the new powers then? Well, yes, we have okay. to. If we're going to get a grip on this, it's not just that, that's, the FAI. That, that, but that's different than future. what you were saying earlier on about them not exercising powers that no, they already have. No, but I'm saying have. they said they haven't yes. got the powers as regards linking funding with the removal of the board. And I'm saying that that's an option that maybe we could look at. Mm. But there was nothing stopping them, nothing stopping them carrying out a forensic audit. Nothing stopping them. Mm. I mean, look at even the, 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 the issue I had raised weeks before this, this whole thing about the 100,000 come into the public domain. I had raised the issue about the, the, the term limits for board members. And Sport Ireland, the fact that there was um, seven of the existing board members had served over 11 years and um, two had served more than 15 years, yet the recommended... Go- Governance code was three terms of three mm. years, and both um, the minister, both ministers had actually said, and Sport Ireland obviously didn't have a problem with it either when mm. the minister did, that they were they were um, they had swallowed the FAI line that it would be a loss of experience and expertise, but the FAI had changed their rules in February 
to allow existing board members another four-year term, which way exceeds the governance code. And the minister had said, as I said to you uh, Mm -hmm. before, they were on a journey to compliance. That's the attitude I'm talking about, where they had powers Mm -hmm. and they didn't enforce them. Okay, but on the issue of a forensic audit, uh, you believe that they could have and should have instigated a forensic audit, but they didn't. And that's okay, is it? Well, it's not okay. That's what so. So, should there be a consequence for it? That's well, that's that's what I'm saying. The committee needs mm. to do its job now to identify the gaps and hold Sport Ireland accountable. And that's what we have to do. We have to come back. We'll have to come back at Sport Ireland. We have to. It's not acceptable that this has happened, and we have to look at strengthening, bringing in legislation that will fill the gaps, so that they've no excuse for future reference, not just for the FAI board, but for everybody under their watch. So the next test is if they're fulfilling, if Sport Ireland is fulfilling its duties. Well, if, yes, and if they require, which they said they did, extra powers, then it's the committee should look at examining ways to give them those extra powers. And that is to, and if we're to tackle, because my fear is to the fact that I said there's nothing legally to stop Um, members of the existing board putting themselves forward Mm. in the interim it could take you know five six seven eight nine months you know this now the AGM is July all right and they've to come with a restructuring plan at that stage Um, but we need to look at um, ways of for future for future going into holding the boards to account and that's what we need to do and if that's if Sport Ireland said they can't do that and they don't have the powers, then that's up to the committee to do it. But in the interim, we should have hearings with players, grassroots clubs, supporters, to okay. get what, how, what changes they feel are necessary. Because let's be honest, it's, it's common knowledge that um, the, the FAI board were lawned themselves and you didn't dare question and you didn't dare ask. Yeah. So it would give an opportunity for the sporting groups, you know, the players mm-hmm. right down to the fans well, undoubtedly come in and let people, us yep. hear from them and let us learn from them. And okay. then let us draw up, you know, to, to look at legislative ways that we can change this forever okay. so All that right. something this never happens again. Thank you indeed. Got to leave it there. Thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Imelda Munster is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on sport and uh, a TD for Louth. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Justice Committee met yesterday to scrutinise the Gambling Control Bill 2018, a Finnafall bill which was introduced in February of last year by Anne Rabbit TD, the party spokesperson on Children and Youth Affairs. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us uh, this morning, Anne Rabbit. Uh, the objective of this is uh, to. Uh, strands really. One to uh, bring in regulation for the gambling sector and the other is to protect young people uh, from uh, glamorous advertising and so forth. Uh, But it should be said that this uh, bill that you introduced in February of 2018 was uh, an updated amended version of a bill that was introduced in 2013. We're slow to act in respect of this. Good morning and thanks for having me and you're quite right in saying what you've said there. We're very slow to act and very slow to acknowledge that we have a huge problem in this country and the problem is um, on the basis of gambling and we have a duty of care to protect our youth but also the most vulnerable adults 
and regrettably since 2013 or since 2010, nothing has happened. It's been totally long-fingered and we're leaving people very, very vulnerable. What's happened, in fact, since 1956? Nothing, to be quite honest with you. Um, so the, at the moment, there's a technical amendment bill going through. The Senate was introduced earlier on this week. And that is looking at bringing up regulation up to date and um, looking at the, the amendments there that need to be addressed. But in relation to where our bill, myself, Jack Chambers and Jim O'Callaghan were coming from, and it was, you're dead right, it was a take of what was happening in 2013, is to actually make sure our people are 18 years of age, mm. to actually curb the advertising and the targeted marketing of the gambling industry at the most vulnerable and young adults and young children. And also to sort of do a disassociation with some sports and with gambling as well. And a, a lot of that would be easier to police in 1956 because a, a lot of the existing legislation dates back as far as 1956. But in today's uh, technical modern world uh, and with online gambling, it can be very difficult uh, to get age verification, for example. Absolutely. And with with online gambling, you are looking at the fact that people can gamble morning, noon or night. It's a very secretive addiction. It's very different to a person that has an addiction with drugs or alcohol because you can see the side effects of it. With gambling, you can't. It's a real, real hidden disease that impacts not just the person, but their family. It impacts their work. It impacts um, the income coming into the house. So gambling is a very secretive addiction. And really, there needs to be a whole public health awareness around gambling in itself on a completely sidebar. One big element within our um, Gambling Control Bill 2018 was in relation to the social fund, so that you would have funds going towards particularly um, supporting people who come forward with addictions who are identified to help them rebuild back up their lives. At this moment in time, we don't have that targeted and public health awareness, which you would have in relation to drugs, alcohol, Mm. speeding. We don't have that. Okay, but that type of uh, addiction, uh, whether it's drugs, alcohol or gambling, is a health issue. This is uh, a point uh, that uh, David Staunton, the junior minister, was making in front of uh, the committee yesterday, that there's nothing he can do in relation to gambling addiction. But there is a lot that the minister can do. First and foremost, that we have to acknowledge that we have a problem in this country because we really, really do have a problem. And we have to fund and put funds aside to support people that have addictions. Like, it's very hard for people, like, the side effects with gambling, Mm. there's mental health issues, there's people who want to go into recovery, but we don't have the, the, it's very expensive if you want to do it privately and a lot of people can't afford it. But the Minister's arguments seem to be that there are questions for the Department of Health and for the Minister for Health. Yeah, and I was watching that debate as it was unfolding. And really, when you are the, the minister who can actually make changes, I don't think it's fair to be batting it off to another department. We have to take ownership and responsibility. And that's what our bill was about, was saying, actually, we need a regulator, but we also need from the regulator the social fund to protect the people. And perhaps prevention is better than cure. And uh, it was suggested uh, to the committee yesterday by Dr. Crystal Fulton of University College Dublin uh, that uh, education would begin at primary level. Um, Yes, well, I think we all know that education early intervention is the key to prevention. Absolutely. And Dr. Fulton has done numerous reports at this stage in relation to gambling, the social effect it has on the person, what it has on the family and what it has on the greater community and the cost. 
And I think there's some really good models out there. And we see in the UK that they're doing education through yeah. a particular EPIC model. And it's something that could be mir- mirrored here. And it really warrants the support of, of the Department of Education. So we're now looking at another department's involvement, not just health, but education as well. Mm. And it's something that is very difficult to understand unless you're a gambling addict. But the same can be said of any addiction, can't it? Whether it's a drug addiction, alcohol addiction or smoking. Uh, smokers are some of uh, the most addicted people that there are. But if you're not a smoker, it's very hard to understand how bad that addiction is. Yes, um, but but... I suppose if you're a smoker, um, a lot of rules and regulations as how we've changed our culture here, mm. how we have adapted. And my own leader um, with bringing the smoking ban in has actually made a huge impact on the passive smokers. So no different to the person that's gambling, the effect that it's having on their family and their workplace and the last work hours um, by actually doing a, a public awareness, by creating, the, by creating the space for education within the schools and by giving the recovery people the opportunity I think we could do a long way to improving people's lives. Or uh, to stop them from being destroyed, as uh, the case may be. And that's why it's uh, such an important issue to people. Thank you for joining us this morning and talking a little bit about uh, your bill with us, uh, for that matter. Anne Rabbit, a a Finnefall TD for Galway East and uh, the party spokesperson on Children and Youth Affairs. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to Leinster House, our political correspondent Sean Defoe on the line with us as we've been hearing uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, the US House of Representatives uh, speaker, was uh, addressing TDs and senators yesterday. There was a, a real sense of, of occasion as uh, this was uh, to mark the centenary of Dáil Éireann. Good morning to you, Sean. Morning, Michael. How are things? Yeah, that's right. It was uh, to mark the centenary and there's been a few events around it now. And it is quite rare that you would see the joint sitting of the Dáil and Shannon. In fact, in the corridors of Leinster House, there's reminders of all the old sittings, whether it be for Nelson Mandela, Tony Blair, these kind of characters. It is a significant occasion. And she certainly got the full reception yesterday as she came to speak to both members and former members, quite a few former members of the House's both cracking into the doll as well. And one or two rock stars, as uh, the case may be. Uh, there was a real sense of uh, occasion uh, about the whole thing and a real sense of solidarity between Ireland and America. That's right, and the rock star you mentioned was uh, was U2's Bono, who happened to be in the Distinguished Members Gallery and caused quite a few stares and quite a stir in the doll when he arrived. We'll get into that a little bit later. But yes, her speech, uh, quite impressive and very much going in. Uh, first account, Corla, Sean O'Farrell, introduced her, gave his own speech and uh, talked of some of the links that traditionally have been there between the UK or between the US rather and Ireland and it was very much the theme Nancy Pelosi picked up on and she talked mm. about whether it be people who came from Ireland uh, to the U- to the US thinking that the streets were paved with gold and gold and little did they know that they would end up building those streets and having such a monumental part in founding the US. So then the artistic and the cultural links, she quoted some Seamus Heaney to finish off her mm. speech, she talked about Bono, she talked about various different artists and authors from Ireland who have had influence around the world and in the US down throughout the years. And then, of course, the big issues that are facing us today. She spoke a lot about the Good Friday Agreement being its 21st 
anniversary this year, given all that we've seen with Brexit and the threats, I suppose, that are posed to that by the UK leaving, whether or not there could be a return to partition on this island. All these sorts of issues that what she talked about and very much striking a note of solidarity with Ireland. She's done that a few times during her speeches in her trip here, saying that if there is some sort of a Brexit deal that puts the North at risk, that puts the peace process at risk, well, then don't count on the US, no matter what Donald Trump says, don't count on the US to do a good trade deal with them. Yeah, uh, and she was keen, I think, uh, to make links with uh, this country. She spoke about her family in Wicklow. Uh, she did struggle, I think, to pronounce Seamus Heaney's name. She struggled most definitely to say Tornish, to, uh, but she had no problem communicating with Bono and seemed to know him and know a, a lot about him uh, and indeed remembered Good Friday and uh, when uh, Bono uh, took uh, John Hume and... Uh, uh, David Trimble uh, hands together uh, and uh, how that was 21 years ago and how much had changed and how there were 21 year olds living today uh, who have no recollection of the troubles. That's right, Jess. She referenced obviously with Bono looking over her shoulder. She referenced him quite a lot in that meeting, as you mentioned, some of the concerts uh, of the past that have been there and really the changes, I suppose, that have come about. Uh, some of the U2 gigs, for example, I had the pleasure of taking one in in Madison Square Garden not too long ago, and there is a huge amount of historic imagery in it. They do go into the troubles. They don't shirk aside from this in their gigs, and that has had an impact internationally, brought it an understanding of uh, the peace process of the troubles as well to an international audience, and very much so in the Americans who are very receptive to that in the medium that it was being brought forward. She talked about her own family uh, going to his gigs as well, and the impact that's had not just on them, but on us as wider society in the US and building up those links uh, between Ireland and the US and understanding just what that political narrative actually means. Uh, and uh, Bono, I suppose, she may well think that he overshadowed her as well during the speech because afterwards there were quite a few TDs queuing up to get a words and photos and selfies with him as well, while Nancy Pelosi exited stage left for her lunch and meeting with the finance minister. Maybe so, but uh, she certainly left no doubt that the most important thing was the Good Friday agreement. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And she sent out that very clear signal to the United Kingdom, leave Europe in a way that interferes with the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement and there's no prospect of a trade deal with America. A very strong message. How will that be received in the UK? I think it'll be somewhat of a kick to the Brexiteers. I think they in some ways understood that because they could have tried to, you know, cut and run and there is a certain amount of people in the UK who think that they could do a cut and run Brexit and then do all these great trade deals across the world and Donald Trump has obviously been very sympathetic to them. He's criticised the EU for the way they've negotiated with the US in the past and says that the EU has completely taken advantage of America. There's potentially a trade war brewing between Europe and America as Donald Trump ramps up his rhetoric and he would be keen and probably see it as a personal win if he did a separate trade deal with the UK. But of course, no longer does Donald Trump hold all the power in the US and Nancy Pelosi wields quite a lot of that in the House of Representatives uh, with their, the democratic mandate that is there. So it wouldn't quite be so easy for him to do that. You look at other trade deals that have been done, for example, the EU-Canada one, which took uh, I think more than five years to negotiate. So if uh, the president does think that that can be done, Nancy Pelosi's put something of a a spoke in the works here. It'll be reassuring, I think, for the Irish government and for the EU leaders to to know that, you know what, we have the UK in a certain position here and this promise that was given by the Brexiteers, I think there's a wide understanding of it now, but a lot of the promises they gave were bogus. And this one about, you know, if we do end up in a no deal now in October, it wouldn't be such a bad thing because we could do all these deals, but that's not really the case. Okay, uh, a lot of focus uh, yesterday as well, of course, Sean, on the fifth interim report of uh, the Mother and Baby Homes uh, Commission. Where are all the babies buried is uh, the question that's posed on the front page of uh, the Irish Examiner with uh, that little pair of uh, shoes, uh, which is asking to be buried with uh, dignity, uh, really striking a chord with a lot of people, none less than the Minister for Children, it would seem. Catherine Sabone yesterday talking about how after all these years as the Minister for Children, she is amazed at how many times she has to talk about death. Mm, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a lot about our past, doesn't it, that that keeps on coming up, especially in relation to children. And this report, it made for a pretty grim and pretty sombre reading as the Taoiseach acknowledged in the doll yesterday. It is an issue, you know, whatever you do think about government ministers and there's varying opinions on them. Having interviewed Catherine Zappone on this a number of times, there's no denying it's an issue that really she does care about and that really strikes at her heart. She really wants to find out what happened to these children and does want to get some sort of answers. And for some people, we're not any closer to that. I mean, 900 babies in Vespera in Cork, we don't know where they are buried. There's some answers mm-hmm. The report also found, I suppose, in relation to Tune, that more people know something. People who either aren't saying it or haven't come forward yet um, will know something about how where these babies are and, and the burial practices. And we see in, in some aspects of the report people who were involved denying that they know anything. I, I don't think that's a, a credible position, really, if they worked there for 50 years, as some of them did, that they wouldn't know anything about this going on. So there is still a layer of secrecy around what happened here. In many ways, we've peeled that back over the years of what was going on in these institutions, what was going on in relation to the Catholic Church and in schools. 
and every layer we reveal shows another more grimy side to Irish society. The Taoiseach said during questions in the door yesterday that Irish society as a whole needs to atone for what happened to these children because it's not just the religious institutions. People knew at the time what was going on, but it was unspoken. It was, you know, Mary down the road who was in the home. It was the, you know, the best for girls. It was whatever it was. And we still don't have the full answers. Unfortunately, I think we're going to have to see more reports into this and more investigation into it uh, to find both the location of where these babies were buried in order to give some sort of, uh, not comfort or, you know, some sort of reassurance to the people who survived it and are still uh, some sort of closure, if you like, some sort of answers. And also what happened in Chu and the other sites, because some of them have talked about excavation, but at the moment we don't know where exactly to excavate. So, again, one of these reports that I think throws up a lot more questions than answers, unfortunately. All right, Sean. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks you. Thank you indeed for uh, joining us uh, this morning. Our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Michael Reed on LMFM. Granahan McCourt Capital has uh, been awarded uh, the tender to roll out uh, the National Broadband Plan at a cost of uh, €3 billion Euro to the state. At least uh, that's what uh, the leader of uh, Fianna Fáil, Michal Martin, took the Taoiseach uh, to mean when he made comments about this in the Dáil on Tuesday. Michal Martin joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, you made these comments uh, during leaders' questions yesterday, and you had a lot of questions uh, about uh, the Granahan McCourt bid uh, and as to whether it's the same consortium that originally made the bid and if it has the capacity to roll out a project of this scale and size. Yes, well, well sorry, uh, the, the, the Taoiseach did the day before um, on Tuesday uh, announced without any further information that the cost of the the broadband project had ballooned from 500 million to 3 billion. Uh, originally, uh, the government had indicated that there was 500 million available taxpayers' money uh, to whichever consortium um, was, was to win the contract. He, he, he didn't say the contract was awarded, and he said that the uh, final decision hadn't been made by the government, which puzzled me somewhat as to why he just let the figure out. Mm. Uh, if it had you, been you, you took those comments as confirmation of the award, you said yesterday. Well, not quite. I mean, I have to take it. If 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 he's announcing three billion, does mm. that mean the government have actually awarded the contract? No, the teacher rolled back a bit yesterday on what he on his comments the previous day, but he did confirm the three billion. And what I've asked for is a full to put all the information into the public domain. And the questions I asked that you you correctly. Uh, reference there related to issues that have been raised as to whether uh, the capacity is there in, in, from, from the investment company uh, to deliver this project um, and the issues around the tender uh, and the legality around that in terms of the original consortium that originally bid it uh, and, and, and the last remaining one and the composition of same. So um, those are issues that we haven't had the full detail on and there have been no um, um, statements from the government in relation to that. And that's the uh, point, isn't it? I mean, this is why it's uh, dominated leaders' questions over the last couple of days. It shouldn't, at least not in the way that it has, because uh, the government had promised uh, to make a, a statement, an announcement in relation to the rollout of the plan before Easter. Absolutely. The government, the Taoiseach himself said he'd, he'd, he'd announced this before Easter uh, and then just out of the blue this week, they said they wouldn't be doing it. And uh, Minister Bruton said he couldn't. Last week, he said he couldn't give us any information. Um, and then the Taoiseach on Tuesday um, left out the figure, or deliberately announced the figure of three billion, but said we couldn't do any more or not any more in relation to it until a later date. Uh, so it's very, very unclear uh, in terms of the full story around this. 
uh, he did confirm yesterday that uh, he, uh, and there's, like originally it was meant to be about 500 million uh, the cost of this to the taxpayer we're now looking at 3 billion and at the end of it he said we wouldn't own it the state wouldn't own the assets um, or the infrastructure it would still belong to the company he, he, um, so he, there are serious questions around this in terms of cost and I think the biggest issue that has emerged in the last number of days is the cost of this I think uh, that has taken people by, uh, by, by um, you know, in terms of the scale of it. I think that's the big story. And I, I don't think the Taoiseach said that the cost would be three billion, or didn't say definitively that it would be three billion. He certainly would have hinted at that on Tuesday. But he he says that it, the reason that the cost has. Uh, ballooned is because the scale of this project has also ballooned uh, and that uh, at the time when it was first announced in 2012, 20% of homes had access to high-speed broadband and that's now 75%. Well, three points there. First of all, he did confirm that it's $3 billion. That's a figure he, he actually, in a reply to Mary Lou MacDonald, he gave a figure of $3 billion on Tuesday and he confirmed that again yesterday. Uh, in terms of the, 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 the broadband coverage, that's all private sector, and that's fine uh, insofar as the existing companies in the market um, have, without any government um, uh, assistance, have provided the 75% coverage. The whole issue since 2012 has been the state's commitment, as announced in 2012 by Pat Rabbit uh, in the then Finnegan Labour government, that they would connect every home and every business no matter how rural, no matter how remote, and I'm quoting from the National Broadband Plan as announced by Pat Rabbit then, and he's, he's, he's forward to that plan. So the plan hasn't changed since 2012, despite the Taoiseach now and the Minister for uh, Communications trying to change the goalposts and trying to spin it uh, that the scale has changed or it's a different project. That doesn't stack up. If you look at the actual documentation, if you look at Doyle's speeches by Deputy Rabbit at the time in 2012, he is very clear that this project is about the state providing fibre to every home and to every business, and that the bidders in the lead-up to this in the last two to three years were led to believe that $500 million would be the limit to which the taxpayer would commit uh, as part of a gap-funding model. I don't want to go into the complexities of it, but basically that's what was on offer from the state, and then it was up to the companies to bid in terms of which, which consortium had the best model, if you like, to deliver the broadband mm. to, to rural Ireland. It's, I think it's extraordinary that it's taken so long. Mm. During the general election of, the 19th, of 2016, in the aftermath of that, I, along with independents, would have spoken to officials in the department, and they indicated to me that the tender process would be over by the following autumn. Um, and we're now three more years on. Uh, so I do think there's something wrong when it takes six to seven years to work out um, the, the, the process, the tendering, um, and, and to finalise it. Uh, for a project that is so vital to, to mm. rural learning because it, broadband is a great enabler for small to medium-sized companies. How vital? Could, is it, it, is I think it, it's very vital for rural it, because we is know... Is it worth three across. billion, though? Sorry? Is it worth three billion? Well, that's a big question. I mean, are there other ways to do it? And that's why we, we, we haven't seen the full details on this and we haven't seen... We don't have the full information. But that is a fair question that you've asked, a very fair question. But the, the, the equally fair uh, is the assertion that small businesses um, need broadband to survive in rural Ireland or if we're to attract industry and businesses and allow them to grow and develop mm. in rural Ireland, they will need high-speed connectivity. It's the, it's, we're in the modern era. Even if we want people to work from home, uh, which many multinationals now approve of and facilitate, we can't do that in many parts of the country because of uh, poor connectivity. Uh, and no uh, high-speed high broadband connection. So is the question uh, so actually, is it worth 3 billion if it means waiting 
two or three years longer than if we don't spend the three billion now? Well, we may not have to wait two, two to three years longer, um, and we are in a, in a difficult position. I think three billion is is, is an incredible um, sum of money. I don't know the full details in terms of the contract. I don't know where the. And I asked this question yesterday: Who is taking all the risk here? And it's over. You know, the money will be spent over a twenty-five year period, but a lot of it will be front loaded up front. The issues around capacity of the company to deliver this is important, um, and I think we need to be very careful before we dive in here uh, that we don't end up. Prolonging it, prolonging it even further. The teacher yesterday said it would take many months to finalise the contract, the detailed contractual negotiations. If, if 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 a decision was made by the cabinet next week, it would take many more months to even finalise it. Um, the decision would be in principle, and then they would have to finalise detailed contractual uh, details and negotiations. Um, it's, I think originally it would have been far better uh, if they had asked DSP or a state body, uh, because there is a very strong argument now that uh, given the two bidders pulled out before the, the final bids because they said it couldn't be vi- it couldn't be made viable they didn't think it was a viable proposition and uh, that the commercial uh, the, the market hasn't really um, been in a position uh, to deliver uh, for the for the 20-25% of people who, who are to be covered by this national broadband plan uh, and so it might have been far easier and better if we had directed the ESP as a state company to go in and do it uh, on behalf of the people, okay, we but, have to wait. But to do, uh, but to do that we, now, uh, I think it's been suggested you could be pushing it back by three years. Well, the government said that two years ago. I mean, the government. Okay. I know. I mean, yeah. the government yeah. have delayed this for about seven or eight years, yeah. Yeah. and I think we look what we have to obviously uh, reserve our position until we see the full documentation okay. and the full details from the government. Which I think he should publish now, given that he did give the figure. I don't understand why he wasn't in a position to give the full story this week before Easter. Maybe it's because of the National Children's Hospital and the PwC report just out last week, and maybe the government wanted to distance itself from one major overspend uh, to another. In other words, they didn't want the broadband story on top of the, the Children's Hospital okay, story. Well, the Tarnish just said uh, we'll have an announcement within weeks rather than months. Uh, we're weeks away from the local and European elections. I know you're in Meath uh, this morning canvassing for the local uh, elections. Do you hope that we'll have the announcement so that people can cast their vote uh, in the knowledge of uh, how the government has performed in respect of delivering rural broadband? Well, I think the people will will know and know already how the government has performed. It simply hasn't performed in terms of rural broadband. Uh, and this has been delay after delay. And I smiled when you used the, figure, the, the phrase within weeks. I can take you back to last November. And if you look at parliamentary replies, within weeks. Uh, within weeks now could mean anything up to 52 weeks. Uh, <laughs> you know, I could, there's language like shortly, uh, timely manner. Uh, I could give you a whole list of phrases that have been used for the last two years while everybody has been waiting um, for the delivery here. And, you know, I'll, I'll be out today with Ashling Dempsey in, in, in Trim and Sinead Geraghty uh, in Longwood, Vera Kelly in Enfield in the Trim LEA area. And we have three r- r- women running in this in that, in that particular local authority area. And I, I've no doubt that the issue will emerge, along with other issues like housing and health um, as well, which tend to be the dominant issues at the moment on mm. doorsteps across the country. Not Brexit, uh, and possibly less reason for mentioning Brexit after uh, what Nancy Pelosi said uh, to uh, the politicians in Leinster House yesterday. Yes, uh, I think Brexit is, is, is a worry for everybody. Uh, I think the public get the fact that they want to avoid a no-deal Brexit, uh, and that the country must work together. Uh, and that is why I took a decision before Christmas not to precipitate a general election notwithstanding difficulties we have with government's performance on a number of fronts, but we felt that the, we couldn't be spending four months 
in an election and trying to form a government while developments were, were, were underway in terms of progressing to a potential no-deal situation as we had in December, January and February and the incoherence in British politics. So it's a big worry. It's a big worry, worry for agri-food sector, uh, for, for beef, yeah. uh, for dairy products, uh, particularly if we don't manage to develop a, a soft Brexit with Britain because we need to keep those products on the shelves in, in, in British supermarkets. Uh, to maintain jobs, um, particularly in 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 the um, rural parts in northwest and 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 the west of the country, uh, and that would be a big concern because beef farmers are in deep trouble already. Um, you probably are, are hearing that uh, in terms of the beef prices being not, not economic mm. at the moment in terms of what they're being offered. Um, but do you agree that there's little or no prospect of a, a disorderly Brexit uh, for, for, for six months? Uh, and to the comments uh, that Nancy Pelosi made yesterday bolstered support for Ireland in uh, the sense uh, that uh, the UK is not going to leave uh, in any way that it affects the Good Friday Agreement because it knows the consequence that it will not be able to strike a trade deal with America as a result. That's very helpful comments from 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 um, uh, the the American delegation as Pelosi yesterday met with her yesterday. I think it's um, it, it also confirms what we've all been saying to the Brexiteers that the idea that you can just leave Europe and start uh, negotiating trade deals uh, was fanciful from the outset. I mean, trade deals are very difficult to negotiate; they take a long time. Mm. Um, and um, the idea that the UK would be able to negotiate with the US. Uh, having left the EU, I think it was always a bit fanciful. I think they, their leverage would be much less because the European Union is a much stronger body, um, much stronger market, and hence would be in a much stronger position to negotiate on our behalf with the United States than individual countries can. And I think what Nancy Pelosi and, and, and the American delegation um, did yesterday uh, was simply, or the day before with the with the Brexiteers, was to make it clear to them that um, the, there would be no trade deal at all between the UK and the US, who wouldn't get through the Congress if it was to damage in any way the Good Friday Agreement. And I think that, that was useful. And again, it, it, it's afforded also mm. reality, really, for those who have entertained um, thoughts in, in, in the UK, which really are not founded on fact or on uh, any evidence base, because it's very, very difficult, even in normal times, to get a trade deal through Congress. So is uh, this not the ideal time to hold a, a general election? Because we have this six-month window where there's no prospect of a disorderly Brexit, uh, and uh, God knows after that. Well, no, the next date on which there could be a disorderly Brexit is June. Um, And I think the... I would hope uh, um, that... I wouldn't rule out the prospect of something happening before the end of May, Um, and I think it's important that we're ready to respond to that. If we have an election now... The government is in no position to respond with authority to developments in Britain. And why do I say that? I think the British Conservative Party and the British Labour Party will be very reluctant to participate in European parliamentary elections. And uh, already, I, I think a YouGov poll out today is saying that the, Brexit, the, new, the new Brexit Nigel Farage party is topping the poll. So that's a sign of, of, of the dangers that lie ahead in British politics if there was to be European parliamentary elections. And I get the sense that the two main parties will want to avoid that. What does that mean? It may, may mean that they will come to some accommodation before the end of May, possibly involving a customs union, which will be very beneficial to Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, need to, we just need to be together and intact as a country to be able to respond, respond to those developments and engage with Britain and with the European Union. So now is not the time to, to take a reckless decision, in my view, and it wasn't the time before Christmas either. I think most people get that in terms of protecting jobs, protecting mm. livelihoods. 
what shocks me about Brexit is that all politicians should be about trying to, at the very best, enhance the livelihoods, protect jobs, make sure the atmosphere is right for businesses to, to, to develop. Uh, the Brexiteers who promoted Brexit didn't really take on board the impact on the livelihoods of many British people and many British companies. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we in Ireland should follow, so we should always have as our, as our number one priority the protection of jobs and livelihoods and not do anything that but would could unnecessarily, that posi- unnecessarily damage it right now. Could that position change if Fianna Fáil gets a, a bounce in the local elections? Um, no, because the local elections are separate to general elections. Mm. And I, I, but I do think, you know, we will obviously want to consolidate our position as the largest party in local government. Uh, we have some no, new and good candidates across Meath um, and um, across the country. Uh, and also, of course, um, the European elections will be very important for us. And, we've, you know, with Brendan Smith and, and Anne Rabbit uh, in the northwest, we'll be uh, going out very hard to see can we win two there. Uh, and um, we have Malcolm Bourne and Billy mm. Keller, as you know, in the south, and, and Barry Andrews in, 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 in Dublin. Mm. So the European elections, I, you know, I do think we, they're very shortly upon us. I think yeah. it's, but I think the European elections, I would say to people generally, take, take notice of them. I think it's important. Now is the time to be pro-European Union, uh, to work, certainly to reform the European Union for the better. But I think there's no point in electing negative people who just want to go out there and uh, be negative, negative uh, against the European Union on every single occasion. I think we need positive, pro-European uh, members of Parliament who get the idea that Ireland is best served by belonging to a rules-based international organisation uh, that can advance high standards and high quality for consumers okay. and for the public at large. All right, well, people will get their say in a little over a month, uh, but we leave it there for the moment, and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Michal Martin, TD, the leader of uh, the Fianna Fáil Party. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us a little bit later than usual because she was busy eating Easter eggs, uh, <laughs> but she's here with uh, some of uh, the comments uh, that have come to us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Good morning, Michael. How are you doing? I told you not to tell anyone we're eating Easter eggs. <laughs> yeah, now, sorry, she just let the yeah. cat out of the bag. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I'll get straight on to um, comments from the programme this morning. It's been very busy on the phones, but I'm actually going to um, start off with an email that we got to the programme following your piece with Fergus died yesterday on uh, via GoGo. And mm. um, we were contacted by Mark um, via email and he um, outlined details of his own experience with the company. He said, Hi Michael, I just wanted to email you and explain what happened in my own situation. Um, I thought the Bob Dylan concert would sell out straight away so on the day the tickets came out I rushed onto Google and searched online for tickets. Right. I stupidly clicked on the first sponsored page that came up, something which I never normally do mm. and just assumed it was a primary site and bought the tickets available. He said, this is my first issue. He said, I'm very disappointed that this type of manipulation via um, is allowed to exist via their platform on Google. Mm. Um, he said, my second issue is via GoGo. As soon as I landed on their site, I was aggressively sold tickets. Yeah. I was led to believe that there was only 20 tickets left and that I had to hurry or I was mm. going to lose out. Well, that's all the time. If you, well, that's uh, it, uh, yeah. And you go back in an hour and there's 20 tickets left. Yeah. If, you, if you bought 10 of the tickets, you go back in another hour, there's, there's only 20, 20, 20 tickets, tickets left. You go yeah. back tomorrow, buy all 20 tickets today, go back tomorrow, 20 tickets left. <laughs> this is it. That's exactly yeah. what he's saying. And the clock is ticking down. You get 10 minutes sometimes, 15 minutes, and the clock is ticking down and then you're saying, well, I have to do this because I'm getting the tickets mm. that I really want for this show that I really want to go and see and it's important to people. Uh, and then they tell you you have to open up an account with them. Mm. So you go off and you uh, set up a thing then you have to check your email and you have to confirm it and by that stage you've like three minutes left. <laughs> 
And you're going, oh my God, yeah. And that's it. It's pressurised selling. Yeah, well, that's it. Because yeah. nine times out of ten, most people are buying tickets for other people as well as yeah. themselves. So they don't mm. want to be letting yeah. their friends or their families mm. down as well. Yeah. So you do. You blind mm. buy, like, you yeah. know. Mm. And this is what Mark was saying. Mm. He was saying that when he was paying for his tickets, he was quoted a price. And when he went on yeah. to go on and make the purchase and confirm the purchase, he noticed that the booking fee was substantially bigger than in comparison to usual booking fees. Yeah. He said, alarm bells probably should have started ringing for me then, but I foolishly went on to buy the tickets, two of them for a €160 each. I've since found out that the gig is still not sold out and the tickets are still available on Ticketmaster for €100. He just thinks it's sheer greed on the part of Viagogo and completely misleading to the customer. So he he spent €320. It should have cost him €200. Absolutely. Uh, And he could go out tomorrow and buy the same tickets for €200. And this is a story that is told over and over again Mm -hmm. about Viagogo. If you're buying concert tickets, please hear the story and be aware that this is what happens if you use Viagogo. It's your decision to use them or not, uh, but that is the experience that a lot of people will testify to. Uh, We'd... Fergus O'Dowd on with us yesterday because uh, of the FAI stuff and the Oireachtas Committee, yeah, but uh, we also spoke about a a letter that uh, came to him about the experience that I had personally with Viagogo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that came from uh, Minister he- Heather Humphreys. Uh, we'll mm-hmm. send that letter on to Mark uh, okay. and to anybody else interested, uh, put it on Facebook and all that sort of thing as well. Uh, but we'll send that on because uh, there's details about consumer law in that letter. Uh, and it would seem as though Viagogo are breaching that consumer law on occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the minister says in her letter that had I not made a complaint to the CCPC, uh, that's uh, the Consumer Competition Protection Commission, yeah. that she would have passed it on to them uh, because she believes that it should be brought to their attention. They're investigating my complaint as we speak. Viagogo yeah. uh, were forced to make a refund as a result of the publicity and because of calls to them from Minister Helen McEntee. Mm-hmm. Minister Heather Humphreys is now involved. Uh, and if you look for victims, this is for Mark uh, and anybody else who may have uh, stories like this, if you look for victims of Viagogo on Facebook, you'll realise you're not the only one. Yeah, you're not on your own, definitely You're not. far from on your own. Absolutely. There's 9,000 members of victims of Viagogo. Yeah, and I'd say that's just mm. the people who have actually joined up. Like, there's yeah. plenty of people. Mm-hmm. I know of a couple of people mm. who were stung in the same way yeah. and haven't joined up groups mm. like that. So the yeah. number is probably mm. an awful lot bigger than anyone knows. Well, I, I was stung in exactly the same way Mark was mm. and I just thought, well, look, it's spilt milk. What a fool me. Mm. Uh, there's nothing I can do about it. I've made that mistake and I'll live with it. Yeah. And I'll pay that huge amount of money, uh, which was at least double the cost of the tickets uh, at the time. And I, I was embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt foolish. I felt stupid. I yeah. remember saying to you, yeah. God, what have I done? Yeah, worse than that effect. Mm. Uh, but sure, I've done it. It's spilt milk. But then I couldn't get the tickets. Yeah. Uh, and then invalid tickets came and I I, I called the theatre and this was for my brother's birthday. I said, you won't get in with, it, with those tickets. Yeah. You know, to, to, to go to a show on a Friday night uh, as a, a birthday present for somebody and then to be refused at the door. Yeah. Take your own risks, uh, take your own advice, uh, but uh, if anybody would like uh, a copy of that letter from Minister Humphreys, which outlines specifically consumer law, 
uh, which you may look to contest your case or if you want to ask your bank for a chargeback, which is uh, to look at, at holding the funds uh, going to buy a go-go, that's another option for you. Absolutely. Well, I'll okay. send the, uh, email, or the letter on to Mark now yeah. after the programme. Okay, so. thanks, thanks uh, for thanks that. Thanks for contacting well. us, yeah. yeah. and yeah. just keeping, mm-hmm. the, yeah. keeping the interest there. Um, uh, just moving on to some of the mm-hmm. comments from this morning. We had a lot of reaction to our opening piece with Tony. Um, Mary was in contact um, asking what's wrong with people that they seem to think they're that skilled that they can drive and hold their phone in the hand at the same time. You don't have to be a genius to know that this is going to be distracting and nobody mm-hmm. can afford to be distracted behind the wheel. Okay. And Anne as well on the same subject said she was really interested in listening to Tony and she just wanted to add one thing. She rang to ask people if we could advise motorists who pull up to answer their phones mm. not to do so until it's safe to do so because some people have a habit of maybe just pulling over at the side of the road mm. and that in its own way causes problems. Oh, yeah. You know, mm. she was saying ask people mm. to pull into a lay-by or a yeah. service station. Don't so stop and around a yeah. bit. Yeah, that happens, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a very good yeah. point, yeah. You see somebody parked on a corner yeah. on the brow of a hill. Yeah. Yeah. And you say, what do they do there? They, you realise they're on their phone. They're on their yeah, phone, yeah. No, 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 so, no, you know, I suppose in their heads they think they're doing the right thing by pulling yeah. over, but they're yeah. actually causing just as much of a danger on yeah. the road as everybody else. Yeah. Um, and then Thomas saying that the RSA and the Gardaí can run all the road safety campaigns they want, but they'll never fully out fully stamp out bad driving habits of some motorists. They just have to accept that some people simply can't be told and no amount of warnings will get through to them. Okay. You know, and um, Margaret was on the phone as well. She thinks on the same subject, she thinks that anyone who's caught on their phone while driving should lose their licence immediately. Um, Their concentration is not on the job in hand. Their attention is not fully on the road. So they're putting themselves and others at risk. So they should be charged with endangering life. Is okay. what she thinks. It's and one of those issues, isn't yeah, it? It really it. Uh, is uh, something that people feel very strongly about. Yeah, and she mm-hmm. was just making the point that she thinks that if tougher penalties were handed down for this offence and if people saw that the authorities were serious about mm-hmm. policing it, mm-hmm. well then, you know, there's better chance that people will be less likely to take the risk really and use their phone while driving. Okay. Um, Sheila was in touch as well on the same subject. Like I mm, said, it's one yeah. of those topics. Prompted you know. a lot of calls. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm. She doesn't think the people should be allowed to use mobile phones in the car at all, even hands-free. Um, she says, aren't people still um, take, people are still taking their eyes off the road to read text, for example. Mm. And as for the people who use hands-free, you might as well have somebody in the back seat shouting at you is what she's saying. Mm. Um, she's encountered a truck driver taking a sharp turn with one hand on the wheel and the other using a mobile phone. Mm. So, I mean, we've all seen yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, see it every day. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And um, Karma says, she says, people on their phones while driving all the time. It's an absolute disgrace. Mm. Um, does it not stress people out having to concentrate on so many things at once? Even a small lack of concentration on your behalf can, can really affect your driving. She's saying, I don't care if it's hands-free or not hands-free. You're not paying attention. There's no mm. need for it. And people are too addicted to their phones nowadays yeah, anyway. Totally obsessed with them. There's no doubt about it. This is it, exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a comment in relation to your earlier interview with Imelda. Um, I have to love our listeners. So let away with nothing. Oh. Uh, it was her mm. use of the word lackadaisical. Mm. We have uh, an actual definition of the word lackadaisical. <laughs> Sheila in, or Susan and Cullen, sorry my mistake, Susan right, and Cullen yeah, was in yeah, contact. Yeah. It's, with, it's with not lazy I take it or it's... It is, um, to use the word lackadaisical in a sentence, the adjective, it means the definition of lackadaisical is someone lacking spirit or interest. So thank you to Susan and Cullen for mm. that definition. Yeah, okay. Like, like I said, you get away with nothing. And um, Dave is in contact in relation to Amelda as well. Um, he was calling on her her, on Imelda and her committee member colleagues to keep the pressure on Delaney and the FAI. They have to be held accountable for their actions and it's the committee who are in a position to do that. Hmm. They have to be the voice of the people on this and to get them the answers they deserve. Okay. All right. 
Yeah. A lot um, of strong feelings there. A lot of strong mm-hmm. feelings. I can keep going or yeah. I can stop. It's up to you. Yeah, give us one more quick. One more, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Mary was in contact with us on the issue of gambling, which mm-hmm. that's obviously in relation to your interview with Anne Rabbit. Um, she thinks that young people these days are using so many things that can become addictive that we're going to have major issues going forward in the future. People have unrestricted access to gambling, social media and pornography 24-7 with little or no age barriers. How do you address something like this? There's no obvious solution. Mm. And that's one of the issues that was highlighted to the committee yesterday, uh, that the lines are blurred between mm. gaming and gambling. This is it. And uh, again, the internet is causing problems. Absolutely. All right. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks for that, Maggie. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now to the confusion uh, there seems to be over whether you can or cannot take photographs of children making their communion. Let's talk about this with Laura Erskine, spokesperson for mummypages.ie. Good morning to you, Laura, and thanks for joining us. Uh, the Irish Independent uh, reporting today that the Data Protection Commissioner says it's received uh, a lot of questions from parents because uh, they're hearing from school principals uh, that they cannot take these photographs, but it uh, appears as though you can. You can, yes. Unfortunately, um, it's not clear uh, for school principals and indeed schools when making these policy guidelines around taking photographs at communions because what they're trying to do is they're trying to protect the children from inadvertently appearing on other people's social media and upsetting parents. And then, of course, GDPR is something that came in only recently and schools have had to learn very quickly what the rules, and they're quite complex around GDPR, they've had to put an awful lot of policies in place over the last 12 months and I suppose they've just been playing it safe by saying um, that that taking photographs at a school event uh, uh, when it's not of your own child would be a breach of GDPR but the Data Protection Commissioner has come out and said actually this type of activity falls under the so-called household exemption mm. um, in their new guidance um, so that's when somebody takes a photograph in the course of a purely personal or household activity and that would be school events like sports events, communion days, confirmation days, Mm. award ceremonies. And these are all really important events in any parent and child's life. And you want to capture them and remember them. And uh, the commissioner is saying uh, that it's all right to put these photographs up on social media for that matter. It is, actually. And they're saying that the issue, um, it can be a little bit of a grey area, the Data Protection Commissioner is saying, on where these photographs are published. And these photographs, when they're published in the context of social media, in a personal context, then that's actually okay because uh, that's in the course of a household activity. But if they were published, for example, in a magazine or a newspaper or, um, you know, used for an advertising campaign, those photos Mm. then would not uh, would be breaching the data protection uh, guidelines. Okay. Uh, and uh, have you come across parents uh, who have a, an issue with their child uh, being photographed and that photograph then appearing somewhere that uh, they hadn't intended themselves, in other words? Yes, we have had a small number of issues, particularly when social media was 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 very new hmm. and, um, and people were unsure as to how to lock down their privacy and they were seeing photographs of their child um, in amongst other children uh, on other people's social media accounts. I think now we've become much more adept at locking down our privacy settings so that if we don't want to share photographs 
that uh, outside of our immediate circle of friends and family, then we can do that quite easily. Mm. But with the with the advent of Instagram being now an even more popular social media tool than Facebook, a lot of mums are choosing to go public with Instagram because they're they're sharing just one or two photographs. Um, and and they're not putting a huge amount of detail in terms of text on those photographs, and they tend to be going public. So it, it is something that we should still be very mindful of, and actually in taking photographs, that we check with other parents whether they're happy for those photographs to be posted, or actually you may take all the photographs with the friends, but just post the ones of your child on their own, or crop the photo using one of the tools that those social media platforms allow um, in order to, so that your, your child is the only one that appears. In fact, We've even had parents who have issued guidelines at birthday parties saying that they they won't have photographs and that their child's Mm. photo will not appear on social media. And it is a concern. Interesting stuff. Laura, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Laura Erskine is uh, the mum in residence at mummypages.ie. Now, before we leave you today, uh, let's hear from Miss Nancy Pelosi. We treasure the Good Friday Accord, not only because of what it has meant for Northern Ireland and for Ireland. That would be reason enough. We treasure the Good Friday Accord because it is not just a treaty, it is an ethic, it is a value, it is an article of faith for us, it is a beacon to the world. We treasure Good Friday Accord because of what it says is possible for the entire world, a reason to hope that in every place that dreams that reconciliation will be possible for them too. It showed us, as President Clinton said, what is possible when you decide to give your children not only your yesterdays, but their own tomorrows. As my friend George Mitchell said after the signing, patriotism has to do with keeping the country in good heart, the community ordered by justice and mercy. With good heart, guided by faith and justice and mercy, America will continue to stand with you in protecting the peace that the Good Friday Accords have realized. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We must ensure that nothing happens in the Brexit discussions that imperils the Good Friday Accord, including but not limited to the seamless border between the Irish Republic and Northern Ireland. Let me be clear, if the Brexit deal undermines the Good Friday Accords, there would be no chance of a U.S.-U.K. trade agreement. I say that hopefully uh, that we would not have to face that reality, but I say it as a prediction. As you face the challenges posed by Brexit, Brexit, know that the United States Congress, Democrats and Republicans in the House and in the Senate stand with you. Especially now, as the first generation born into the hope of Good Friday. Imagine, Bono, since that night you had David Trimble and John Hume at the, at the U2 concert. Children born then, 21 years old now entering their adulthood, knowing peace. We cannot jeopardize that. (laughs) 
We must not and we will not allow that progress to be undermined. For generations, Ireland has been the emerald thread in the fabric of American history and national life. America is grateful for your partnership, the partnership we have together, glad to share in the joy of this centennial and looking forward to another 100 years of Irish leadership in the world. As the great Seamus Heaney wrote, Seamus Haney, Haney wrote, and this I see all over Ireland, well, all over Dublin so far. Once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. Together, we can make hope and history rhyme once more. Thank you for the honor of your friendship. Thank you for the honor of addressing you this afternoon. May God continue to bless America. May God continue to bless Ireland. May God continue to bless the partnership that we share. Thank you so much for the opportunity. There you go. A little bit of history. Nancy Pelosi, uh, the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives speaker, addressing Joel Aaron yesterday in uh, that landmark speech uh, to mark the centenary of uh, the Dole and brings our programme to its conclusion today. Remember, there'll be a podcast available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Before we go, as always, uh, thanks to Maggie McGuire and Ross Leahy for researching. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. Hope you have a, a lovely long weekend, an excellent Easter, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Tuesday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. LMFM podcasts brought to you with Cartman Cross Credit Union, where a student loan can help you finance your further education. Call to Cartman Cross Credit Union on Neal Street or at CartmanCrossCU.ie.